from you know scathing teenage like attitude of anyone being that weak to total self-help junkie and how did this how did this happen to me that I became absolutely addicted to self-help and how did I how did I recover from this disorder hello I'm Dave I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together I need to get better please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you today we're getting better acquainted with Natalie hello Natalie hello Dave (laughs) (laughs) how did you meet me okay Um, I met you through a a writers group so I was looking for a new writers group and Joss who's another member of our group put an ad in Leaf magazine I think so I came along I don't think I met you the first time I went along but the second or third time so we're a part of the same writers group that's how I met you what do you do now work-wise well interpret it as you want to I don't want to sort of tie people to their jobs I would find it hard not to tie myself to my job Um, so I well I'm spending more and more time writing so I am now officially working part-time but that's sort of like three and a half four days and I work for a big management consultancy and I do research and give advice and yeah, I also doodle you doodle I, I, yeah I find it that's literally yeah, what you're doing right? that's literally what yeah. I'm doing is I'm doodling my mother's incapable of having a conversation without pacing I'm incapable of having a conversation without doodling cool um, I doodle myself but I don't doodle compulsively I guess I do, do doodle once got told off in a meeting for doodling because I was apparently wasn't paying attention <laughs> I thought it would be interesting to talk about the subject of memoir with you yeah the way that we came to know each other was through your writing and through my writing i guess and you're the one member of the group that writes non-fiction yeah and yet you come to a writing group where everyone else writes fiction yeah why do you come to a writing group where everyone writes fiction because memoir is not the important part of it it's sort of that it's creative or it's storytelling just like fiction would be yeah Um, And I'm a little bit apprehensive about, do I really want to write memoir? Um, I mean, I started with you guys last sort of September, October, I think. Yeah. And I had, I was, I had some sort of writing deadline coming up and the deadline was for memoir. So I was bringing bits and pieces to you that I wanted you guys to give me feedback on. Yeah. So that was for a memoir um, deadline. So my interest is definitely nonfiction. And I think because I find it easier to disclose stuff about myself and other people, I'm happy for memoir to be sort of like the diving board off. But I would really hope that, I, I want it to dive off into sort of subjects I'm really interested to write about yeah. rather than if I'm peppering anecdotes from my own life that's okay but I'm sort of struggling with what's navel gazing versus what's an interesting exploration of something that plenty of people could be interested in yeah. so I'm still sort of finding I'm still finding my way the alternative and I don't even think there's many groups like this is to go for people who are or groups of people that are writing news briefs or yeah. reportage or pure journalism and that's more instruction rather than um, let's listen to each other's stories and critique so I feel totally at home in a creative group if anything I, I sort of find the fiction is probably a higher art like I might graduate there one day <laughs> but I wouldn't be able to write any fiction at the moment that I would love to read okay and some of the pieces that you've submitted anyway there's yeah. been some uh, an element of fiction definitely uh, yeah. and that and I think you know within the group it, it works really really well um, as a as a fiction writer to have someone doing non-fiction in a group it means we've got a wider variety of yeah. writing that we're looking at so yeah. we're, we're thinking about all things that writing can be yeah um, rather than just you know sitting down and everybody's got a short story every week and my last writers group everyone had a short story ah, right. that's all everybody was doing um, so this is I mean, this is, it's not just that I'm doing something different. Everyone in the group seems to, you know, some people have got screenplays. You've got, like, countless projects. Yeah. Uh, some people have a novel going. So it does feel like there's a really good mix yeah. of what whatever people's passions are. Well, I think so too. So what attracted you to writing non-fiction? What, yeah, what? it was sort of a, like, thank God I found it, because maybe I would never have started writing. So... Uh, 
I think like lots of people that write, I just always wrote. And there was probably this idea in school that I was going to be a writer, which I think happens to different people that really love writing. Mm. Um, you get sort of encouraged up to a certain point. But I didn't know how to convert that into, you know, what am I going to do with my life? So my first idea is, oh, I guess I'll, I'll be a journalist. I think a lot of people do this when they're younger, but I've done it my whole life. The gap between how exciting I think something sounds yeah. and what ends up sort of evolving is huge. Mm. So I studied history and politics in college and sort of vaguely thought I'd be a journalist. But like the facts really bore me, or my news bores, bores me. I mean, newspapers can bore me. So I realized, no, I guess I'm more interested in like really having a point of view or more editorial stuff. I just, I've spent my whole life talking myself out of whatever it is I thought I might want to write about. And I've taken lots of sort of short story um, classes for years. And then one year my mum gave me, every year my mum gives me a book f for Christmas. And it's usually very random. Like it'll, I don't know, she gave me a book about like poetry about horses last year. And it was why, like I don't like horses and I don't really read poetry. But it will always be something a bit. And she gave me this book called... Um, I think it was just called Creative Nonfiction. It's a journal, but it gets gathered up into the best of creative nonfiction. So I think there's like three volumes. Okay. But I hadn't, I'd never heard of creative nonfiction. This was about four years ago. And as I read it, and these were, they, these were just essays taken from, it could be anywhere like Esquire or all sorts of places that people had nominated as a, you know, a, a great piece of nonfiction but is what people call creative nonfiction or literary nonfiction. And I thought, this is what I want to write. So this is why I've sort of enjoyed being a college student. I went back to college a few years ago, is I like being given a brief to write about something I'm interested in, but then to do it a bit creatively, mm. uh, to break some of the rules of sort of what we consider a sort of proper third person removed, keep to the facts. And it was just like, oh, wow. like. You know, if I hadn't come across that, I, I think I'd still be giving up on the idea that I have much to say or that I want to write about. Um, so it was kind of like the thing I'd always been looking for, I just didn't know what it was called. Okay, so you, you had a kind of, this is who I am moment when you read that book. Yeah. Since then you've been, you've been pursuing that, that, that possibility. Did you find that, as a sort of side note of interest, did you find when you were at college that the academic sort of community was receptive to you sort of pursuing things in a creative... My, myself, when I was at university, I handed in a few creative essays um, and they were very... They, they didn't get... They, they, the department didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, no. no. Uh, they definitely did not enjoy some of my forays into... Um, being a bit more creative around things, either because, I mean, I remember I had this professor, Professor Meek, who was like all this white hair and then like this shot of black hair, like, is it Cruella de Vil? Or <laughs> but, yeah. And, and she had the hardest to read handwriting, you know, and I'd get like a page of comment back from her um, with like this micro handwriting. And everything I sent her was like a curate's egg. That would be her like opening, you know, comment. But the bad parts, were stuff where I brought in sources that a historian wouldn't consider uh, reliable enough okay. or all my stuff. And I remember in particular, and I've thought about this ever since, a professor that did give me a first on a paper actually called me in to see him before I got my paper back and said, I really wasn't sure whether or not to score you very highly for this or like not so high because I had to read it 10 times to figure out whether or not, you know, had style trumped content. Like, were you just so stylistically amazing in what you said that you didn't answer the question that I set? Or did you answer the question? So if anything, I think you got penalized a bit for trying to be interesting while also trying to answer the question. It was like, what are you doing? Just answer the question. No, I had a note on one of my pieces that I wrote. Well, I think it was, I did two creative ones. I did. I did one as a CD, I submitted an essay as a CD, an audio CD, I, I realise now it was a bit of a precursor for yeah. what I'm doing now, but um, at the time I didn't know about podcasting or anything, but, so I, I think it was for that one, and th th they didn't want it as a CD, so I had to submit a transcript of right. it as well, yeah. 
But then I made there be differences between the transcript and the CD, so that yeah. was actually part of what I was trying to say. I had a note back on it when I saw it, because they, they gave you back the marking at the end. It got remarked by an external examiner and got given better marks than they originally gave it. But on the note it said, the subject wants to either get a really good mark or to completely be failed. So we, we thought that the appropriate thing to do would be to give a mediocre mark. And I was like, what? Well, they're teaching me a lesson with my actual kind yeah. of, my, my mark. That, that's yeah. very strange. And what subject were you studying? Because I can sort of understand it in history. Well, it's what funny. I was studying theatre studies. They, they always made a very big thing about, we're not marking you down because you're creative. We like creative essays. We're marking you down because they're bad essays. But I mean, mm. I, was, I was never that... I wasn't 100% convinced by that. I don't know. They probably weren't that good. I don't know. Yeah, but to actually tell somebody, it was obvious that you know you were going for gold, or I don't want to be in the race. Yeah, I mean, it's... Go, we're going to make you suffer by just giving you something average. Yeah, I mean, but it was true. I think it was kind of it was weird because getting it back with this kind of little marking sheet on the top of it with what they'd said, I sort of thought, hang on, that's quite a good psychological <laughs> analysis of what I was trying to do. I was, I mean, I was trying to trying to stir things up a little bit. You have in your in what you do, you have the kind of theory side of things yeah. that you're interested in, kind of going into. Yeah, and you have the personal anecdotal side of things. I mean, is that is that a conscious thing or is that something that you? It's totally conscious in the sense that I wouldn't feel. I feel like I'd be wasting people's time um, if I just stuck to the personal anecdotal. I'm really interested in the, the theoretical stuff I'm looking at. So it's like, it's like just giving me a license to go off and investigate what I'd like to know a lot more about. But normally I want to go off and investigate it because there's stuff I can tell you about my own life that right. shows a slightly obsessive tendency towards um, time management tools and self-help books or whatever the pet topic's going to be. Mm. Normally I could go on and on and on about it um, because it's been it's in one of my little obsessions. Yeah. That's the real struggle, is how to get the balance right in certain pieces between how much theory was there versus how much memoir. Is the thing that's driving you to explore the subject or is the thing that's driving you to explore yourself? It's normally, in the things that I've shared with our group, it's normally both. Right. It's kind of like why, so I'm doing a blog at the moment about the psychology of money, but the reason why I picked it as a blog topic is I... All I know is that I have a weird relationship with money, and so does everybody. But I know it took me a long time in life to figure out that that is true. But it's not just that I'm not brilliant at math, but that I have certain priorities and values that might make no sense to someone else. And I'd like to figure out what they are, so I can control a little bit more what I end up achieving. You know, mm. So if I say X, Y, and Z is more important to me, why don't I behave that way with my money? So that's kind of like self-help by exploring a subject to death. But I'm likely not to write about whatever the answer was for me, because what I definitely don't want to write is self-help. I don't want to write instruction. I sort of want to write, oh, I never thought about things kind of like that. Or that's, an, you know, I never thought I'd want to read 10 pages about the history of time management, but that was kind of funny. Or rather than, here's what I personally went off and did with you know, what I learned, because I think that turns, that's so close to self-help. You don't like self-help? Yes, one of the biggest pieces I wrote last year was, what's the opposite of self-help? And that was exactly what you're talking about. 50% of the piece was about the self-help industry, about the history of self-help, and the other 50% was my relationship with self-help, from, you know, scathing teenage-like attitude of anyone being that weak, to total self-help junkie. And how did this how did this happen to me that I became absolutely addicted to self-help and how did I how did I recover from this disorder so that was a that's a good example of a piece where I was trying to look at a bunch of more objective factual stuff about the industry but we're doing a tour via me and how I've related to self-help how did that happen I mean what how, how did, did I you become addicted to yeah um I mean I guess that was more, it depends on what you define as self-help. So books about like how to organize your life or declutter or things around time management, I probably had an early tendency towards. I'm quite chaotic and anything that would have given me sort of a more straightforward filing system I would have thought was like brilliant to read. 
much better than actually filing. Um, so if those things come to self-help, I had an early tendency that way and just didn't notice it. But when it comes to self-help about sort of understanding yourself as a person or relationships or whatever, I think I just ended up with, I mean, my explanation in the essay is, is pretty true, which is sort of, I was 32, 33, and I ended up having sort of the biggest heartbreak of all time. And by then, I'd already gone off fiction, so I was always a real, I was always a fiction sort of binger, and I'd lost more and more interest in fiction in my late 20s, early 30s. And I was already reading a lot of pure nonfiction, and this was the most direct nonfiction that was going to speak to me. So I literally started binging on self-help books. Binging. Right. Like... Okay. Like, you know, basically I couldn't come out to meet each night because I'd be like in tears, but I could make it to the bookstore and I could get a book. Okay. And at the time my flat was sort of this miniature flat, but it was like designed for reading. Like the whole flat was just like one big place to flop and read. And that's part of it. The other part is I'd gone back and done a psychology degree and I had to have a, a research project. And I hooked up with some interesting academics whose stuff treads close to self-help. So my studies were also leading me around that direction too as I was looking for a research project. So this is 2002, 2003, which is when all this happiness stuff came out, positive psychology. Okay, yeah. That's very close to self-help. And I ended up getting involved with one of the people that sort of did a lot of research in that area so I could validate his findings. I had to show off, I could do stats or something. So through my studies, that's probably going that way too. And that's kind of how it happened. But I was reading something about the brain two weeks ago by Rita Carter, and she says one of the ways to distract yourself, I get confused between the left brain and the right brain, but she goes one of the ways to distract yourself if you're in a terrific amount of mental pain is to read. Okay. Because it busies the other side of the brain. It's it like it properly distracts you, and that made so much sense to me. Um, it's just that it wasn't going to be possible for me to read you know, the corrections. Like, I had to be reading something that was, like, directly going to help me. And did it help you? I mean, apart from the distraction, did, did you ever get helped by self-help? Once. Um, once I was helped by... I mean, I was probably helped by self-help millions of micro-little times in the sense that it properly did distract me. Mm. So, I mean, I otherwise might have been drinking heavily or I don't know what are the other things I would have turned to yeah so let's presume some of them are worse than self-help there's this little tiny really super thin book called something like how to stop thinking and that was brilliant and that was kind of like the last self-help book I needed to read and it was just a, a completely different way of looking at getting depressed or being obsessive and it was just very elegantly written and that might have been the last self-help book I really needed to read. So that's the one, that if anyone's <laughs> suffering similar problems, that's thinking. the one to go for. Yeah. Okay, what was the heartbreak that created this binge? Oh, that's a boring subject. Okay. <laughs> so it was a relationship? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just a relationship. Yeah, yeah, relationship. Okay. Yeah. Well, in which case, I, yeah. I think we could, that's all yeah. you really need to yeah. know. Just turn on the radio. Listen yeah, listen to it. <laughs> yeah. Rip your heart out, love song. You sound like you're American. Yes. But you're not. Is that right? No, I am. You are. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm often called Canadian because I sound like I'm somewhere a little bit more mid-Atlantic. But okay. um, I am American. My uh, parents are from Dublin, but they moved to the U.S. when they were 20, 21, for my dad to go to school. And my brother and I were born there. For the first 10 years of my life, my parents sort of thought they were going back to Ireland like next year. So we were sort of shipped back to Ireland for summers. My dad was teaching then, so like he had summers off and Christmas and holidays. Um, but then my parents didn't go back to Ireland, or my dad did, but my parents got divorced. And my mum, I think, um, by then had really got used to life in America and I think felt it was the 70s. I'd much rather be a single mum with two kids in the US than okay. I would like back in Ireland. Oh um, god, yeah, in Ireland, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. So that was my connection with Ireland up until then. But I was, because we moved a lot in the States, that's one of my reasons. But I never really felt at home in the US, whereas my summers were sort of so much fun. I was much more attached to Ireland than my brother was. Um, so even when we didn't, you know, have money, I'd be saving up all year because I was definitely going back to Ireland. And then, you know, as soon as I could, I moved there. I was a lot more attached, sort of my gang in Ireland and my friends. And I mean, I, I also think that just the family house, it was just a constant where other things were never a constant. But it was also beautiful. I mean, it was sort of on the ocean and it was much more of a childhood, you know, gang of kids on the street, sort of only two girls, me and another. So we sort of ruled. So I, yeah, I moved back to Ireland to go to college and then have kind of been on this side of the Atlantic ever since. So went to college there, worked in Dublin for a few years, moved to London and have never gone back to the US. And so what, how old were you when you came for uh, I mean, I was a couple years older than other people going to college. I mean, I saved up for a few years. I was 18, 19. Okay. So how, how old were you when your parents divorced? 10. 10. Yeah. And. Your dad was in Ireland. So then my dad went back to Ireland. Yeah. And did you, was it here, were you staying with him when you went no. back? So both my parents um, grew up three doors away from each other. In the, so both sides in the family are on the same street. Okay. But when my dad went back to Ireland, he ended up being closer to the university. So I've always been much closer to my mother's side of the family. In age, even I'm I'm the first grandchild. Mum and dad had me when they were twenty, twenty one. Right. My mum's the eldest, so I was almost like tacked on to that family um, uh, because there wasn't a huge gap between the youngest kids in that family and me. Okay. Um, there is a cat on the table. Bruce has just jumped up if, on the table. Uh, if yeah. if that picks up, and there was some creaking in the door. I think we're in your we're in Natalie's kitchen. We're in my kitchen. You said you were a kitchen kind of person, which is. Yes. An interesting thing. Did you mean cooking or? No. You just mean. Yeah. That's where I mean, even in this house now, back in Ireland, you would have found me always in the kitchen. Um, I think our whole family might be a bit kitchen. So house parties, I can't stand them. But if I go, I'll be in the kitchen. Ah. I guess it's where you can hang out without it being formal. And in theory, I could be cooking, but everyone knows I don't. So, but I might be doing the dishes. There's something else you could be doing. Whereas I find. Sitting rooms. I don't like watching TV. Okay. For some reason, I sit on a sofa like I look like the most uncomfortable person in the world. I sit at the edge of the sofa. Okay. <laughs> so I just, kitchens are more comfy. Okay. I quite like kitchens, but I, I don't know if I think of them as very comfy because, mm. you know, the sorts of chairs, like the chairs that we're sitting on now, are pretty hard. A bit hard. But I mean, I guess that kind of keeps you. Yeah. Engaged, doesn't it? Like, well, have you ever sat on a like bean bag and felt massively uncomfortable? Yeah, that's the way I feel kind of about sofas. Okay, like if no one, if I'm not talking to you, and I am watching TV or reading a book, a sofa can be great. But if I'm trying to talk to you, I just feel like there's no way to really get comfortable on a sofa. No, I mean, fair enough. It's an interesting, interesting point of view on it. So you weren't going back to you weren't visiting Ireland because I mean I was sort of trying to sort of draw. So I, one of the things I'm trying to do in these conversations is draw parallels between my life and, yeah. and people's lives. A bit yeah. like a bit like your work, really. Yeah. I'm trying to have other people's stories and my story relating exactly. to each other. Yeah, a time in my life where I lived in Coventry for a few years after my parents had split up. They split up when I was very young. Mm-hmm. In fact, they split up before I was even born. Gosh. Uh, I think the the year before I was born. Then I had a stepdad, and we moved to Coventry. And before that, my dad had always lived with us, even though they'd even though they'd split up. Oh right. Um, okay. Which is a sort of strange setup in itself. And yeah. when my stepdad came to live with us, that all three of them lived in the same house, but different parts of the house. My dad had had a different part. I used to go to my dad's at weekends, <laughs> even though it was part of the house. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's because he was retired, so he was the person who was looking after the kids. That's yeah. the thing. He was 58 when I was born, so okay. he he yeah. was. 
able to be their primary carer because yeah. my mum had a career. Yeah. And the time I sort of was trying to draw a parallel with was we sort of moved from North Wales to Coventry and then my dad didn't live with us anymore. Yeah. You know, the new relationship had happened and my little sister was born and it was just felt that he should be somewhere separate. So he had a, a flat and I'd go there at weekends and... <laughs> Bruce is, is it Bruce trying to drink drink your water? And when I think back at that time, I sort of have a very similar relationship to what you sounded like you were talking about, how you feel about America and, and Dublin or mm-hmm. Ireland where you were going, in that when I was at my mum's house, it's a very kind of hard time. Mm-hmm. But then when I was at my dad's, it was like a kind of, not a utopia, like an oasis in it. Yeah. And so I always really related to that flat. Yeah. And when I think back, I've got these kind of double narratives. One's like very dark and one's very, very happy. Yeah. Um, and it sounded like you were sort of articulating something similar. Yeah. And I mean, I, for some reason, I have like a, you know, rightfully or wrongfully, I have an outsider mentality. Um, and that could be very simply explained by we were often in a new school. Um, because my parents kept moving around, but then other things happened, like the school I was at just happened to close, and it was a lot of houses and a lot of schools by a very young age in the U.S. So I was often an outsider, like in a new town, new school, mm. versus Ireland, where I was. First of all, I wasn't an outsider on the street. So my best friend who lived next door was, you know, a year older than me. We've been playing since we were like, you know, under one. Her mum used to play with my mum, her grandmother knew my grandmother. So I wasn't an outsider. It was one of the few places where I wasn't an outsider in that way. Right. But I was a foreigner, but in a way that had status. She's so cool, like she's from America. This is when it was cool. (laughs) She came from America, which it's never been since in my life of living (laughs) abroad. so I was better, I was different, I was cooler, whereas, I mean, back in the States, I never fit in in lots of bad ways. Like, I didn't have the right clothes, or for years, we used to have to wear clothes my grandmother sent over, because my father's family was in the rag business. So I'm wearing clothes from 1970s Ireland in 1970s America. It's not good. Okay. Not good. So I think probably also, it was just a, such a happier time summers it's interesting what you were saying there as well I mean I, I was I was one of those people who moved around a lot when I was growing up and went to lots of different schools doesn't sound like as many as you but um, and I kept moving between England and Wales which meant I was always the outsider wherever I came yeah. to you know England and Wales you're not popular if you've got a Welsh accent in the in England and you're not popular if you've got an English accent in Wales yeah I mean you can say there's a bit more justification maybe for the Welsh being yeah. annoyed with the English yeah. but either way yeah. I was the one who was getting that I think it has given me an outsider mentality and it's meant that I don't feel I don't know I don't feel this I don't have a conventional attitude to home mm-hmm. and I don't have a kind of, yeah I, I don't I don't really I, I, I'm quite happy to be the outsider, I guess. As I get older, I'm, I'm more happy to sort of to not not fit in, and, and I don't really mind that. Yeah. I mean, do you feel where, where do you where would you say is home to you? Oh, I never know how to answer that mm. question. Never. Just recently, I was thinking. Um, so London is by far the longest I've lived anywhere where I have absolutely no family, and I've got lots of family in Ireland and lots of family in France, sort of both sides of England. And as you can imagine, sort of Irish aren't thrilled about England. They're like, you had to move where? But London must be at some point home, right? So if I've sort of voluntarily sort of stayed here 15 years, when when do I get to kind of say uh, London? But that that's only kind of started to occur to me in the last year or two. I properly don't know. Yeah, it's a hard question, I find. Yeah. Specific places are home, so like where my grandparents' house is, that feels like home. Though, you know, I don't feel Irish. Sometimes being in the States feels like home, but not really. It's people, family, and my home, as in where I actually live, has always been extremely important to me. I sort of have to have a, um, what do you call it? I can't think of the word. But you know, a place you know where I can read, where I can come home to. I get highly agitated 
if I'm living somewhere uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, most people do, but I, I'm not a bloke in the sense that, you know, lots of guys that don't really, you know, it's a base. It's not a base for me. And I'm a bit of a hoarder. Do you think it's a gender thing? I mean, I... It might be a bit... Yeah, now that I say it, it might be... It might be a gender thing. Because, um, I mean, me and, me, and, me and Jen have different attitudes to that. Yeah. You know, she, she very much wants a, a home that she... Yeah. You know, an environment that she likes and everything has to be in the right place and nice. And I, I don't care about it. It's also, I think, an introvert-extrovert thing. Okay. So the more extroverted you are... Maybe there's a bunch of things you find relaxing that are not dependent upon having, you know, the kind of home that you want. I think it's harder if you're an introvert not to have an escape place okay. where you control. Yeah, I can see that actually. Um, like Charlotte's total extrovert. I mean, she loves the house, but she's out all, all the time. It would be exercise for her or whatever. So I think that's part of it. Part I, of I it spend too. a lot of time in the home. Yeah. But I just don't care where that place is. I mean, I, I guess I've, I've always thought that the reason that I don't care about home so much is that I never really had one. I was always moving around. Um, and so I kind of got this idea that, you know, home is a fluid thing and that people yeah. are what, what it's about. So yeah. um, I, I, get, I guess I would say people are my home rather yeah. than... Uh, I, I, I rarely get... A, Although I have an affection for areas, I think, yeah. but rather than houses, like yeah. the whole of an area, like a, yeah. a geographic location. So the two most common things people will say to you if you're sort of out or, I don't know, at a cocktail party, where are you from and what do you do? To me, are like the most traumatic questions of all time. <laughs> like, because... I hate the, what do you do? What I hate do you that. do? Where are you from? I mean, they're completely friendly questions, but my, my answers tend to be sort of very shut it down, very unfriendly. I, I don't make a lot of friends <laughs> um, when I'm out socializing through strangers. I am not good with either one of those questions. Where are you from? See, I'm no good with small talk either. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that I'm trying to kind of explore with these conversations as yeah. well. And actually one of the other people that I've had on this show, I don't know if they'll, what order I'll go out, the interviews will go out in, but yeah. another person I've spoken to is American. Yeah. And she also sort of said that she finds the UK doesn't get to intimacy very quickly, yeah. whereas she naturally gets very quick into intimacy in conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you think that that's where you're at, or do you think you don't want intimacy at all in, in, the, in these um, social events, social occasions? It, I think the problem is small talk, so I don't know how to give a short answer on most things, mm-hmm. and when people are asking you those questions, Unless you really have their attention and you can tell they, they actually want to know the answer, it's a little bit like responding to, hi, how are you? You know, they kind of want to know, but not not really. Yeah. Um, so it's just a self-consciousness around not being able to sum up in some way where I don't sound like a completely babbling person what I think is the answer to either one of those questions. And then immediately coming across the way I would prefer not to is the kind of a disorganized, complicated person who overthinks things. Yeah, <laughs> I know that. Being, I think I'm similar to that. I also, um, the other problem I have when I meet new people is that I, uh, yeah, I'm not very good at short answers. Mm. I, I give answers where I kind of say, oh, maybe, or maybe, or maybe, because um, mm. I'm never sure on exactly what I think some of the time. Mm. Although often then I suddenly think I know what I think and I yeah. rant and yeah. let, uh, afterwards think, I didn't agree with that. Well, I, said, <laughs> but, but the, I mean, my other problem is I'm not very good with boundaries. So if, if I meet somebody, I'll just, you know, I'll be talking about, I don't know, sex or something, that some traumatic event of my life or whatever, very quickly, if it comes up in conversation. I don't no, bring I, it. I have but. the opposite problem. So I am very bad at boundaries. But what I normally do is my most spectacular ability is quizzing other people. So this is a weird exercise Mm. for me. You are good at quizzing. I I would, most of the time that I socialize with people, redirect the conversation off of myself and it would just get you to talk all evening. And if you're talking about disclosing stuff, I'd so be the opposite that it almost looks like I'm being intriguing and I don't mean to be. Like I'd be obtuse about things where, or cryptic about things that I know why it's a bit why I don't know how to answer it without disclosing too much, but I managed to just do it in a way that lets you know there's something interesting there. <laughs> and well, what do you mean? Uh, and I don't. I mean, so in a way, it just sort of feels like 
it's not really safe to have chats with people you don't know. And I've always been a little bit like that. I like small groups, put me anywhere with too many people, I get very agitated. Mm, I can get very agitated in big um, groups. I'm very happy to meet one-on-one. -on -one. At some point my life was too one-on-one, -on -one. it was like always one-on-one. -on -one. Whereas now, and that can be not very relaxing sometimes. And it's very uh, intense as well yeah. for the other person. Yeah. I'm, I'm similar, I'm one-on-one I'm -on -one conversations yeah. as well, and friendships that I, yeah. I like, but... It can get too yeah. much. Now is a really good balance. I've got plenty one-on-one, -on -one, but a little bit more. I have a friend that does a lot of research in this area, and she goes, there's one space, two space, three space. It's all about how you manage your energy. One space is how much time you take to be with yourself. Two space is how much time you take to develop intimacy with another. And three space is about possibilities. So if there's only two of you, there's not a lot of possibilities. But if there's three, four, five, six, seven, all of a sudden there are, you know, we could, this conversation could go 25 completely different directions. Yeah. So it's a possibility. And um, if you are someone that spends a lot of time alone or a lot of time in one space, three space can be really relaxing. But for me, three space has to be like three to eight people. I don't want it to be, you know, 50 people at a bar. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm good, I think I'm good with big groups if I personally know everybody there. Yeah. And then I feel comfortable. Yeah. I, I get very nervous in big groups where I don't know anybody because I, I just, I, I, I don't know what they're going to think. And I'm, mm. I'm, I'm one of these people who always wonders what people are thinking about me as well, which yeah. I guess means I'm an egomaniac. But, uh, no. <laughs> but, no. But, but I, you know, I always do um, obsess about that stuff. It must be quite a useful thing to be intriguing in terms of engaging with the opposite sex. You would have thought so, Dave. She <laughs> <laughs> really has not worked out that Cause, way. Because I've always yeah. thought my problem, yeah. and I guess I don't have much of a problem, yeah. I guess, if I've been in a relationship for 10 years, I guess yeah. that's not a problem, but I always still feel, yeah. you know, you always identify with how you first felt with these yeah. things. But I've always said my problem is, I go to, you know, I've never been able to attract women because yeah. I've just... Overshare. Every, overshare, <laughs> say everything that comes into my head with no filter. <laughs> Um, and I've always been very jealous of people who can be intriguing, who can mm. be mysterious. Well, so, I mean, there's lots of work done on boundaries and the way in which it's not working for me, if you're going to sort of buy into all that stuff, is I'm too, they'd say I'm too walled off. That my body language is very... I think the opposite sex needs to get a certain amount of signals um, that they're not about to be rejected should uh. they want to make a move. And apparently I'm not really good at any of those signals. In fact, it looks like I'm sending a bunch of other ones. So the more, and I, I've been, I mean, one of the reasons why my love life has always been such a disaster is I get absolutely horrendous crushes. So now it's compounded by the fact that not only do I like you, but I'm incapable of speaking to you. And should you attempt to speak to me, I might literally run out of the room. Or, you know, I'll make some immediate excuse to get away from you because I'm so physically uncomfortable. This is okay, I guess, when you're seven or eight or maybe like 13, mm. it becomes a problem. I'm not, you know, I'm not that bad anymore, but um, my last relationship, I'm sure, suffered for the fact that, I mean, we were together seven years, but the first year that I knew him, I was totally in love with him from afar. You know, so I think by the time we got together, it took me a long time to realize he wasn't this imaginary person. Ah, uh, you'd fallen in love with the idea well, of... You know, I'd never had a conversation with this person. Okay. Wow. You know, and I mean, I definitely think the problem with that relationship is that we were just sort of like absolute best friends from the word go. And I didn't see that there wasn't any chemistry because I'd had the hangover of this like one year mega crush. So of course there had to be chemistry. If, if being intriguing is helpful with the opposite sex, n none of them have let me know that now. <laughs> <laughs> no one's been asking me out lately well, as a result of it. That's the sad, well, that's the sad thing, yeah. I think, about being intriguing. Or, or, I mean, a lot of the time people don't know. When I'm being a bit more positive about myself, yeah. I, I think, well, I feel like nobody has ever fancied me from afar. Yeah. But maybe they have, and I don't know about it. It's exactly. this, it's, this is the thing that all you know is the times you're rejected. Yeah. You don't know all of the times you accidentally rejected somebody else yeah. without even knowing yeah. you were doing it. Yeah. Um, I remember back when I was in my early 20s, I came on a trip to London with a friend, and we were at uni together at the time, and I, we told him 
about all of these different girls who fancied him and we actually took a picture of him each time we told him a new girl and the look of, it, of shock and confusion on his face because <laughs> he, he's never realised and he didn't and he's, I think he still doesn't really realise that yeah. he's very attractive to yeah. the opposite sex yeah. I don't think he's insecure about it he's one of these lucky people who's very secure yeah. and that's why he's attractive to the opposite sex obviously yeah. Yeah. But, um, but he doesn't know he doesn't know when people are he's too yeah I don't think he's that interested. That's the thing. He's not that interested yeah. in some ways in yeah. the opposite sex, and that maybe that's the key. That it's not being interested. I mean, I guess yeah. I've I've always come across as too interested. Yeah. You've been coming across as not interested, <laughs> and it's, it's pretty, getting yeah, that balance. It's the balance, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's definitely getting the balance. So you are someone who finds it hard to answer questions about yourself at a party. Mm. I find it hard to be at ease hmm. so in a party situation. So whatever answers I come out with inevitably don't really they feel very clumsy to me. And yet hmm. you are someone who in your work hmm. is telling people about yourself. Mm-hmm. What what do you think I mean what why do you think that is? Well, I think a couple of things. I think I often, before I, that, I'm not telling a lot of people yet, I mean, because I'm not well published or whatever, that would be an interesting telltale thing. But yeah, I would have rocked up to this writer's group not knowing any of you and immediately started with a series of bite-sized memoirs where you definitely could have written me off as sort of neurotic crazy chick. Which I thought Charles was like really about to do in the beginning. Well, that, that was the funny thing. I mean, yeah. initially people didn't know it was non-fiction. As well, well, yeah, I got away with whole... like I didn't have to clarify um, <laughs> that this was all true. I think I guessed quite quickly, and, yeah. but um, yeah. it's always an awkward thing when there's something that's true, yeah. and then people start picking characters that are true apart. Yeah, I, I find this in fiction sometimes. You base something on something that's real. Yeah, like I wrote a piece once about infidelity test kits. <laughs> Have you heard of them? <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're these tests you can do on your yeah. person you think is being unfaithful. Okay. on their DNA, on their underwear, or oh, whatever, right, okay. and you can see if they're being unfaithful. Yeah. It doesn't really prove anything, it just yeah. proves the presence of DNA on their boxer shorts. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they're being unfaithful, and yeah. unfortunately people are taking... And, yeah. they, and they test their children as well. They're, or yeah, they're sexually, sexually active. active, really. Um, so that's what these test kits are. I, I wrote this story about a, a very complicated story where, where the wrong person was accused of the wrong thing because yeah. of one of these infidelity test kits. And when I submitted it to creative writing, everyone was like, I don't believe in these. Don't think these these don't exist. I was like, I, they, they do. There's, they, there's companies that are set up, you know. And I thought it was funny when you sort of uh, joined that, that people were sort of saying, I don't know if I believe this character would feel well, this. And, and that it's but that's you. that's still totally valid. Mm, um, it, it is a valid point, yeah. Because I mean, it's a, li- a little bit more valid than I don't believe these tests, which is an interesting thing. Because I think part of the reason why I'm and the writing group seems like so professional in terms of. I didn't even notice if anyone would be uncomfortable with that. I had done a writing course a few years ago called Factor Fiction, where none of us ever said, and you were never meant to say, whether or not the piece you had just written was nonfiction or not. It, that was not the point. The point yeah. was, it doesn't have a narrative, is it good, blah, blah, blah. So I think from, um, I certainly got used to in that class feeling like you could absolutely comment on nonfiction, even memoir, first person stuff, talking to the person about their character and their persona, or stuff that happens in the story, whether it's true or not. Because if it doesn't ring true, it's got the same problem. Well, yeah. Um, I, I had a very weird experience once in creative writing, because creative writing at uni was very much like our writing group. Right. But, but there was a tutor, and that yeah. was, I have problems with authority figures, so this wasn't given me. <laughs> But I had a sort of situation where I sort of, a, a girl had written a poem, and the poem was about rape, Yeah. and I said, I don't buy this, yeah. you know, I don't believe this, yeah. it, it, it doesn't ring true, and yeah. she was like, well, I was raped, I know, and it's, it's like, like oh, I felt really bad, yeah. but I, I carried it through, I but said, well, point was still valid, yeah, that's what right? I said, I mean, yeah. I said it's, it's still valid, and actually she wrote another piece yeah. a few weeks later that was very... Yeah powerful and moving yeah. and that, through that experience I sort of thought yeah actually 
although it felt like the ground had opened up beneath me when I'd sort of put my foot in, in it. As Which it wasn't you putting your foot in it in a way. I think that for some reason a lot of people treat writing groups and creative writing in particular like some form of therapy. Mm. And it doesn't matter if that's what it is for them, but we don't need to know that because mm. it's not a therapy group. It's a, it's, it's a writing group. Yeah. Um, and they're there to critique your work. They're not there to critique your person. I think that's the sort of the first thing that you learn and people that don't learn it are normally you know not really great members of a writing group right mm. if they're always personalizing like I was saying to you earlier on I, I the first of this series goes out next week mm-hmm. episode one and uh, that is a very personal kind of memoirish piece that I've done I've done a, a sort of some some true story events that spark event I was telling you about yeah got some clips from that like stories I've told live and it's got a piece of writing that was autobiographical that I've recorded and it's got some improvised stuff and it's very revealing about myself and my life not I mean actually I sat down and I had two and a half hours of it after I'd finished recording everything I was like oh god so I've I've edited that down to an hour but when I was doing it the big thing that I sort of became aware of was the responsibility for me to treat the other people in the situations with a, a respect. The people in the situations in your life. Yes. I know. Yeah. Yeah. The real people in my life. Yeah. I mean, you, you so if you and I were not on a so I mean actually, and also to answer one of your other questions, once you make it past a barrier with me, I'll tell you anything and everything. Yeah. It's just that's why the barrier is strong. Yeah. But when I'm telling you anything and everything, the the recorder's not on, yeah. or we're not publishing it. And as soon as you're publishing a story, this whole other dimension enters. Yeah, definitely. Um, where you kind of think, well, how much of that is my story? How okay or not okay is it to include these other people? That's really hard. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the reasons why I don't think memoir is going to be my lasting base. Or if it is my base, it's going to be a bit tangential. Like. You know, it's about how I lost my diary. Oh, look, it's about time management. Oh, look, it's about this. Um, rather than the most important incidents of my life, which have always involved somebody else. Yeah. I just kind of feel like, mm, no, that's probably mean, not okay. Well, yeah. that was the, that's uh, the cat's knocking something off. But the that I mean, that was the area we sort of came came up against earlier on yeah. with the whole kind of past relationship thing, and I I find that. It is hard to know how much to reveal, you know, if to say my friend said this or to when to name people, when to change details to protect identity. I mean, and and I've sort of certainly come up against people being suspicious of me because I'm a writer and they know that, that I do use things. But I mean, when I use them in fiction, I always make composite characters. Yeah. Uh, But when you're telling non-fiction, yeah. there's also a responsibility to the truth. Yeah. And so you don't want to lie to your audience. Okay, so that, I've got this huge dilemma tomorrow. Okay. By the time you publish this, you'll probably know what I did or didn't do. But I have to write a piece by the end of the week that relies on me doing some sort of immersion, being a fly on the wall somewhere or being a participant in something. And I, I would really like it to tie into my blog, which is about money. And the only thing that keeps occurring to me that I, that I really want to do is I want to go along to a, a debtor's anonymous meeting. And there happens to be one five minutes from this house. Wow, okay. Um, and uh, I was somebody suggested I go there anyway a couple of years ago because me and my weird relationship with money, they're like, you should be going to debtor's anonymous. So I feel like since I was told to go there anyway, I have a legitimate reason to rock up. Yeah. And then one of two things will happen, or one of three things will happen. Um, there will be no way of writing about it that I feel is going to be okay. Or there will be some way of writing about it where I kind of go, well, you know, I'm not going to, you might have to erase sort of where I live, or I don't know what, something. Um, or the third thing is maybe I could just say, I'm interested in money, I write about money, you know, I was advised to come here anyway. Would anyone here be interested in talking to me afterwards? Mm. We wouldn't have to name you, but will somebody talk to me yeah. about what it's like being part of this group? That would be the bravest, bravest thing. And the most responsible And the thing. most responsible thing. Um, but I don't know which I'm going to do. No, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. 
Um, I, I think we're okay because I don't think we said where you, where you live, so yeah. people don't know where you live. Um, I, I, if, if I did say where you live, I would definitely delete yeah. that. That's yeah. not yeah. something you want to have on yeah. the internet. Um, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. And the thing is, if it's a great story, yeah. it's really hard yeah. to resist writing it. That's yeah. the problem that yeah. I have. I mean, I'm lucky because I write fiction. Yeah. If I went to that group, I could write a fictional piece yeah. about a debtors anonymous group. Um, no, it is it is hard. You can't decide. I mean, I guess I sort of try to make rules, mm-hmm. but I know that that it's not definite. It's fluid, isn't it? So yeah. you don't know what you're you're going to do until you. Have you been watching this whole debate about three cups of tea? Uh, Have you heard of the book? No, no, I haven't. Three Cups of Tea is a book about, it's, it's a true story, but it's a, a guy who, I haven't read the book, so I'm paraphrasing maybe incorrectly, but he went to climb the Himalayas. He had an accident. On the way down, he ends up very sick and in this village where they take like amazing care of him. And he says, I'm going to come back here and build schools for you. And then he goes back to the U.S. and he sets up a charity and it becomes his mission and I don't know how many schools he's built. So then he writes the book about it called Three Cups of Tea. Um, and the thing that's come out about two weeks ago is um, lots of elements are, are lies. Okay. Um, but then you kind of say to yourself, lots of elements are lies and a lot of the money that the charity has raised has been used in promotion of the book. Whereas I've kind of thought, well, this charity would not be making money if this book was not being promoted. The book is about all these schools and whatever, so I don't really see the problem there. The lies, it's kind of like, well, um, because apparently when he wrote The Truth, he couldn't get the book published anywhere. And then he partnered with another author, so it's by him and someone else. And the other guy was like, you need to make these bits more interesting. I think there's bits in there about the Taliban kidnapping them that never happened. Like, really, you know. Yeah. But then you go, well, what if he built 25 schools? But, yeah. Like, and what's the answer? Is the answer that there's going to be some sort of... I mean, who's responsible for critiquing stuff, whether or not it meets some sort of bar of mm. you you can call your stuff non-fiction? Well, it's a strange thing. I, the, the same thing happened with A Million Little oh, Pieces yeah, so by James Frey, didn't right. it? That's yeah. right, I remember reading that book and thinking... That is such an amazing book because yeah. it's about a guy stopping being a drug addict and an alcoholic, yeah. but not through the AA, AA yeah. not yeah. not through the twelve step plan. Yeah. You know, he doesn't find God. Yeah. That's the significant thing about it. Yeah. He finds his own way around. I guess he does in a way. But anyway, yeah. I mean, it was amazing and it was so honest and visceral. And I thought yeah. this is amazing. When I found out it wasn't true, yeah. it did make me feel betrayed. Yeah. Like. I believed in this thing and then I suddenly found out it wasn't true and I don't know if it would be as good a book if you knew it was fiction going in because you'd be like okay that's a story and was was it all not true I mean it was just exaggerated well I think some of it was true I mean with his sequel he really went you know, ridiculously too far, I think. And mm. I'm not sure how much of it was true. Mm. It's hard to say. And creative nonfiction, I mean, that's one of the sort of landmark debates, exactly what happened with that book. Yeah. I mean, did you see just recently, I know you don't watch very much TV, but yeah. there was a documentary, it's a series actually called Wonderland, and this yeah. was an episode. It's the first animated documentary the UK's had. No. Um, yeah. And it's basically, it's relate couples. Oh, yeah. And they've animated, you know, they've made them into cartoons so that they're not revealing their identities. Brilliant. So it's just, yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. But also, it brought up all of these, I don't, it, it is certainly really well executed. Yeah. But I, I just couldn't get over the fact that these aren't really what the people who we're hearing look like. Yeah. And, you know, that, that facial expression isn't necessarily the facial expression. That, that yeah. changes everything. And also, they've done all of the things that are always kind of questionable about non-fiction. So, yeah. you know, they, they use emotional music and yeah. sound effects. Yeah. And they also, they've done animated sequences of some of the interior yeah. thoughts of the yeah. characters. Yeah. And that's yeah, yeah. brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really well done. Yeah. If it was fiction, yeah. I think it would be, I'd love it. Yeah. But because I know it's non-fiction, I just feel uneasy about it. And so one of the rules I sort of, um, I'm doing a course at the moment with the creative non-fiction group, you know, Mm. and they have, and this is a book on sort of 
how not to break any of the rules wow. of creative nonfiction. Keep it real. Keep it real. Everything you need to know about researching and writing creative nonfiction. But with stuff like that, they would be very clear, psychoanalyzing characters. They, they could say, you can go ahead and do whatever you want as long as you've signposted what you just did. You okay. know, so as long as you've said, if only we could see inside the mind of serial killer X, Y, and Z, maybe it might not be too unreasonable to think that they were thinking these thoughts. But you better make it clear. I mean, I think with interior thoughts, everybody knows. Well, you don't know that. But with dialogue and other things, different people are more puritanical about um, the lengths they'll go to to make sure you know that that's not indirect quotations or whatever. Yeah. But it's really interesting. And this sort of, and this review sort of like some of the most famous pieces of nonfiction, um, creative nonfiction, and how they still made it readable and interesting while at the same time breaking no trust with, with the reader. And the reader. Yeah. Do you feel that you've got rules for yourself in place? No. It's really weird because I've only really taken myself seriously. I only went part-time sort of six or seven months ago. Before then I had been working on a book for about two years, but it was about other people's lives. And I eventually put it down because it was too confusing for me until I developed myself more as a writer to know how I want to treat other people's lives. Because I want my stuff to be sort of funny and I can make fun of myself, yeah. but making fun of someone else is, is something different. So the trouble is I don't know what my rules are, but I'm not, I'm not really, I haven't been published much. That's when it starts to become like, oh. Yeah. Whereas I've had full license because five or six people, whatever is the size of our gang, might be reading yeah. my stuff. But I had something win a prize recently to get published and I was like, oh, hmm. That mentions, you know, this particular charity and that guy that works for the charity and it paints mm. them in not a very nice light because I didn't see him in a very nice light. You could figure out who that is. And then all this stuff in this country about sort of libel and... Super injunctions and all that stuff yeah. that's going on at the moment. It's yeah, it's scary. very strange. I'm so worried about writing well that I haven't given myself a lot of rules around the boundaries of nonfiction because I haven't had the threat of being published yet. But yeah. when you start self-publishing and blogging and some of my stuff now is getting published, then you kind of go, oh shit. I'm having a sort of similar kind of <clears throat> moment, I guess. I've never worried about fiction because I, I just really think that if somebody gets annoyed because I put a part of their life in fiction, well, that's a shame. I won't want them to get annoyed. But since it doesn't actually reveal them in yeah. any way, yeah. they can't really hold it against me. Whereas, you know, this series is non-fiction. The, yeah. the other podcast that I've done, Four Days in a Room, is not just non-fiction, but it's also something that I'm... I don't know if I'm, if I'm happy with who I am in that series. And then now lots of people, you know, it's built, it, the audience is building, not massive, but, but enough to know that, I mean, I guess, what was it, 61 people downloaded the last episode and a lot more people play it live. So, you know, it could be 100 people well, are hearing that series every week. That's yeah. really interesting because I think... Um, I totally relate to the, I mean, the piece that got, that's getting published, you know, I liked it least. I mean, I almost, I don't even know why I threw it in. It's like they picked that one. Mm. Not only because, because I don't like myself much in it or the voice. And I think because there's, in some ways it's much easier to get published these days because you can self-publish or yeah. um, you don't develop enough of um, a chance to kind of go, mm, wait. That's, you know, you're, st you're still kind of crafting, you're, well, you're still figuring out your craft, right? So stuff will go out there that will make you cringe. I mean, they, a lot of people sort of say that's never going to go away. No, yeah. <laughs> Ever. You're going to always, you know, that lots of people cringe over their own stuff. Um, but I think that's part of becoming a writer is kind of, is some of the cringe factor and how to handle it without treating yourself like shit and kind of going, that stuff sucked. It's just kind about, I mean, it's about, I guess you're never gonna stop cringing, but you have to, like I, I, I feel as a, as a kind of writer and a musician and stuff, I made mistakes in sharing these things with people too early in my uh, development of my craft. Mm -hmm. So I have, in a way, within my friendship group, people mm -hmm. who've known me, I've always been the one going, read this, I wrote this, read this, promoting yeah. myself. Mm -hmm. And then when the internet hit, like, now yeah. I can do that. Uh, to, to the world 
but I think I sort of shared it too early yeah. and then people kind of now they're I'm having to win back opinion where people may have written me off in the past I'm now having to sort of win them back over by saying look this is quality now yeah like the internet allows you to circumnavigate the gatekeepers but it also means that you don't have those gatekeepers forcing you to make your work better yeah so it is a really sort of strange thing and hopefully you know you'll get keep getting public because I think your work is very good but I guess you'll keep having this yeah. dilemma now well and I know maybe I am just too puritan because I have a blog at the moment and where I'm doing a blog thon you've got a blog every day and you guys have really helped me immediately figure out how to be sort of briefer and shorter but on that same web address is stuff I wrote three or four years ago it's ridiculous and I've actually refused to let myself go back and delete it because I'm like nope you're just gonna have to learn to live with this yeah. and I don't know why I'm being that way about it I could just go back and you know delete it because I think I'm still in a phase where if I have grander hopes for myself we're nowhere near that now so I still feel like I, uh, I don't have readers to lose yet or yeah. people to totally alienate who are not gonna like my style but I don't know why I'm being that way and you know if I want to delete it why don't I just go delete it no, it's a tricky yeah. thing. I d have deleted stuff in the past, but I've, I've got to the stage now where I'm like, with my music and stuff, if it's good enough, then it needs to stay there. But I've come into, the th that's it's fine if you're making these decisions when you're on your own. Yeah. But again, it's if, I, if you're collaborating with someone and they want to delete your back catalogue and you want to leave it there, yeah. then it becomes a sort of interesting, yeah. I don't know who's right in that situation, Who you know, if you both make the decision to put it out there, yeah. then can one of you just suddenly reverse that and not, you know, it's hard that's to say totally who's right. That's totally shared IP, right? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I guess that's the thing. So it, it can become quite sort of strange because I, I think there are some writers who want to burn everything that went behind them uh, and there's some musicians and all creative people, artists, I guess. And there are others that want to want you to, and I'm one of them, I mm -hmm. think, who want 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 my pathway to to remain. You know, that people can see the development of me as a. Well, I know that I appreciate seeing other people's pathways where they've got to stuff those real gems, yeah. because it demystifies what's involved aside from the tons of practice. Um, into like, no, you're you know, you're not going to sit down. Oh, maybe you will, but the average person isn't going to sit down and pen you know, the best thing they're ever going to produce. Yeah. So I think it, for me, I, I sort of enjoy reading the stuff that people do that's kind of crap and then watching it transform into something so much better. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. It's been a pleasure getting b better acquainted with you. Do you have anything that you want to plug? I will plug my blog, which is called Panic Station which I think you can get to by just Googling the words Panic Station and then it has my name, just another wordpress.org or something. Okay. Um, and at the moment, for the month of May, it's all about the psychology of money. Um, but so, it will be about other patch topics. Because this probably won't come out in May, I should think. Yeah, so I'll be on to something else in June or July or cool. August or later on this year. Do you want to say goodbye to the listeners? Yes, I do want to say goodbye <laughs> to the listeners, but I don't know what you say besides goodbye. Yeah, you Except... Yeah, and um, I think podcasts are loads of fun, but it's another other element to think that someone might be listening to you. It's strange. It's sometime down the line. I think it's always strange at this point because I've yeah. done quite a few of these conversations now, and you, and when I say, do you want to say goodbye to the listeners? Yeah. Some suddenly people go, there are listeners. There are listeners. Yeah. So yeah, I I wasn't aware at the time of his listeners. I was just looking at Dave and his headphones and Bruce the cat yeah. next to him. Yeah. There we go. De de demystifying the podcast yeah. as we go. Yeah. All right. Goodbye then. Bye. <laughs> So a couple of days after this interview, I got this in an email from Natalie. So my brother passed through town last night, which is very rare indeed, like first time in 10 years. And we were hashing through old stuff and it suddenly entered my head that I might have said something like, I went to 16 different schools on the GBA podcast, which is totally not right. Did I say something like that? I went to six schools before college, eight homes till high school, another 13 since left home at 17. It was bothering me all night, and if I did say 16, what's wrong with me? Where did that number come from? Maybe you could put this as an apology if it's not too late. Sorry. And it's a funny thing really, because the way the mind works is strange. In the second part of the GBA episode with Vaughan, 
I said that I had read The Lord of the Rings 16 and a half times when I was a kid. Now, that isn't true either. So I wanted to take this opportunity to, to put that right. I've thought about it since then, and I've realised that I've counted it, and I've worked out I did read it ten and a half times, which is still pretty impressive, but it isn't the same as sixteen and a half times. I don't know where sixteen and a half came from as a number. Ten and a half is the truth, possibly. God knows if I'm getting that right. The memory's a strange thing. You say things you don't mean. I've said things I didn't mean in other podcasts. For example, I in the MJ Hibbert podcast, I said that me and Jen didn't agree on hardly any music, which is not true. We generally agree on nearly all music, and then we have a few areas where we don't agree, and I misrepresented the truth there, but then that's what happens. That's what happens in conversations. You misrepresent the truth. You, you say things the wrong way. So I don't think Natalie should feel bad. I don't think I should feel bad. I'm not even sure if she did say 16 times. I can't remember. I'll have to scoot back through the editing now and, and see. But whether she did or she didn't, doesn't really matter. It's nice to hear that she was concerned that she did because that's that's the way the mind works, that's the way people are. And we worry about little tiny details that nobody else notices. And we worry about getting things right and what's true. That's what we do. If you're enjoying getting better acquainted with me and with my guests, maybe you'd like to help other people find out about the show. There's a few easy ways to do that. You can go on iTunes if you've got five minutes and leave a review saying what you think of it. That helps it get higher rankings on iTunes and stuff like that. What the show really needs is word of mouth. And in this internet age, that means liking the show's page on Facebook or retweeting it or sharing the link to all of your Facebook friends or Twitter followers, doing whatever you need to do in whatever social networking site you use. And if you don't use a social networking site, well, hey, you can just tell your friends or email your friends and tell them about what's going on. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.